0: Welcome to Herd at Heritage. Herd at Heritage features cutting edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, DC, brought straight to you.
1: Welcome to Navigating the Navy's Future, featuring Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Michael Gilday. Please welcome Brent Sadler, Senior Research Fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Center for National Defense.
2: Well, good evening and thank you everyone for coming tonight and also everyone that's online monitoring and watching this uh, virtually from wherever in the world that you are tonight. Uh, It's a great honor and privilege to welcome today the Chief of Naval Operations. This is a very interesting period of time in our nation's history. We are facing some unprecedented risk Uh, right now, with an ongoing war in Ukraine, it sets a context for a threat in a decade that could be very perilous, especially as you look at what's been happening in the last few weeks around Taiwan in the Western Pacific with China. Uh, This will be a very contested decade, and Navy has been for generations the preeminent deterrence force of the United States and has maintained the peace in the world for generations. And tonight, the Chief of Naval Operations, the topic du jour will be the navigation plan. Now, this is a term that mariners are very familiar with. Navigation plan provides the guidance. It also points out the perils and also the needs of a pre planned course. In this case, the future of the Navy as we move forward into this decade. And so we're gonna focus in on that. We're gonna focus in on what the Navy needs and what the nation will have to supply in order to get the fleet that the country needs in this very contested decade. And without further ado, I'd invite the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Mike Gilda, to join me on the stage. So now that I'm in my seat, I wanna give a little bit of the rules of the road for tonight before I hand the stage over to the Admiral for a few prepared comments on the 2022 navigation plan. Uh, First, uh, I'll be moderating throughout the evening. I'm the senior research fellow here at Heritage Foundation for the last couple years on naval warfare and advanced technologies. Uh, But the reason that this event is even possible is because of folks like you from the media, academia, the think tank world, active duty, retired members as well, and of course everyone online uh, all across the world. So you will have a chance to ask questions. Uh, Please start to think about those and please keep it pithy. And without further ado admiral i'll turn it over to you for some opening comments thanks mr
0: sadler Um, i appreciate the opportunity to talk about where we're headed as a navy and uh, i think it's best to open up with what is really influencing our decisions on uh, the path that we're taking the path that we're navigating so in a word it's china and so if we take a look over the past couple of decades we see a force that has tripled in size we see significant investments in their nuclear capability, uh, both in terms of um, of their capabilities but also the, the breadth of those capabilities. Um, we see an increase in their ability uh, to uh, leverage the space domain, so their satellite constellations that allow them to find us and, and to target us uh, potentially. We see a heavy investment in weapons with long range and we also see A big investment in sensing systems and netted sensing systems, both terrestrial space-based and also uh, out in the maritime. So uh, they are a significant potential adversary. Uh, As uh, this audience is well aware, their um, behavior in the Western Pacific has been fairly aggressive I think uh, uh, um, the reaction from their neighbors uh, on a daily basis is testimony to that assertion. Uh, and so that led the United States Navy to take a look at ourselves in terms of um, what would, how would we face this adversary, uh, not only to deter them, but if we potentially had to face them in combat. And we decided that we would have to face them in a different way than the means that we've been operating uh, in the past 25 or 30 years in a more distributed manner. So to spread out the force uh, to mass effects uh, across all domains and so from the seabed to space. And that would also include leveraging um, the United States Marine Corps uh, from uh, island chains in the Pacific. Uh, That led us to think about what kind of fleet we'd need uh, to actually deliver those kinds of effects in a distributed manner. And the fleet that we have today, uh, we believe um, we have too much capability that is uh, uh, focused on um, too few platforms. And so uh, in order to give us a distributed force, we looked at what type of attributes that force would need in order to, uh, to be effective in combat. And so we thought about the fact that I talked about it it needs to be a distributed fleet. It needs to be able to come at an adversary like China across multiple vectors and all domains simultaneously. Uh, It needs to have uh, the attribute of distance. So that's weapons with range and speed that can hold an adversary at bay. We have to have sound defensive systems for fleet survivability. And so that includes our investments in areas like hypersonics, uh, areas like laser technology, and high-powered microwave in a defensive role we had to think about uh, deception concealment maneuver uh, stealth and how we apply those technologies we had to think about um, decision advantage and we have a project ongoing uh, that uh, we think will put us in a position to actually move information to the tactical edge faster than we ever had before to put our commanders in our uh tactical action officers in a position to deliver effects and to make decisions uh, faster than their opponent. And so that's influenced us in thinking about the, the force of the future, um, and it'll take, uh, as I was just talking to Mrs. Sadler, 20 budget cycles to get to a hybrid fleet of 355 manned and, um, and about 150 unmanned. Every single study that we've seen in uh, Washington and beyond, whether it's been done inside the Pentagon or by think tanks like this, um, have concluded that we need a Navy of at least 355 manned vessels and about 150 unmanned. That is not a perpetual end state, though. We continue to learn. Through exercises, through battle problems, through war games, I'll be in. I'll be at the Naval War College next week for a two-day war game with senior leaders. That'll influence the, how those numbers will change, but probably more importantly, how the composition, the mix of the Navy changes with capabilities we need for the future. So, with as, with that as a table setter, um, I open it up to uh, to your questions.
2: So, thank you very much, Admiral. So. There's Actually, I think I got a question already from the audience. I've got one as a moderator's discretion, which I will I will hold for right now. And I'll go to the audience. So 1st
0: uh, General I'm with uh, Newsmax. I wanted to ask you, uh, one of the problems I've seen in my studies is we don't have adequate uh, like shipyard resources to uh, keep up with maintaining the ships that we have. And where we, in these Chinese decide to start uh, shooting at us, I mean, battle damage, shirting out new ships, uh, shooting out uh, uh, destroyers, cruisers left and right. And, uh, how do we deal with that budgeting and to budget allocate uh, resources? So we are expanding those capabilities. Private, I think what we owe private industry, what we owe industry in the ship uh, ship repair business, is a stable and predictable vision of uh, what kind of fleet we're going to have in the future. So as you see right now in our budgets, we're decommissioning ships uh, at a rate that's uh, uh probably higher than we than we'd like that adds a degree of instability in their ability to predict what size workforce they need what type of infrastructure we need in our shipyards and so um uh i think um uh you know if i, I if i uh, if i would uh um, uh i think give them credit for making decisions based on the signals that we're giving them um, and so where I'd like to get with a surface shipbuilding line, as an example, it gives some stability with respect to fleet size. I'd use the, the submarine shipbuilding uh, plan that we have uh, as an exemplar. And so out for about 20 years, we're in a cadence right now to deliver two attack boats and one ballistic missile submarine a year. That's a high degree of predictability for the industry that, that produces those, that delivers those vessels. Likewise, and to your point on the repair side, it gives us a higher degree of fidelity on what repair requirements we're going to have during that same period. On the surface side, I would like to get to that same place with our production line for destroyers, for frigates, for amphibious ships, for smaller amphibious ships, and for our resupply ships, so that we can uh, then have a have a, uh, numbers that are fairly stable and predictable and give the repair yards a target to shoot at. Uh, with a higher degree of confidence.
2: So before we go to the next question, I'd like to take one from the online. So while Fred Bartels is getting that, I did have one question, Admiral. I'll take moderator's uh, prerogative. You know, the navigation plan, you you mentioned the 350 manned ships, the 150 large unmanned and 3,000 or so aircraft, you know, arriving somewhere in the 2040s. But the danger right now, and we've had several people come and speak here at Heritage who served CIA director, Secretary of State, two Indo-PACOM commanders, one previous and the current one, they all say that China is making preparations for a showdown or at least a contest this decade. How are you preparing or how is the fleet postured to address the more immediate dangers at hand?
0: Our priorities have been readiness, modernization, and capacity in that order. So... In other words, we can't have a Navy bigger than we can sustain because we have to be ready to fight tonight. We need a lethal, ready, capable Navy more than we need a bigger Navy that's less lethal, less capable, and less ready. So, what does that really boil down to? It means that you have to have ships out there today on point, for deployed in the Western Pacific, in the Arabian Gulf, in the Eastern Mediterranean, in the high north, that are properly manned and that those crews are properly trained for combat. That's mission number one. The second Is that they have adequate supply parts uh, so that when things break down they can repair them themselves or we can have them pull into a port and turn them around very quickly so we have to be self-sustaining and that capability has to exist today their magazines have to be filled with ammunition we can't be a hollow force and lastly I'd say the fourth point of readiness has to do with maintenance and so it's been an imperative for us to drive down delay days out of private shipyards to zero. We've, we're not satisfied with where we are now. Industry's working very closely with us to get to that point. But we have to be able to maintain the fleet that we have with a high degree of confidence. So that, uh, to answer your point, we have to be ready to, to fight tonight. We have to be ready for that 2027 scenario uh, that the previous Indo-PACOM commander Laid out a couple of years ago, but we have to be ready to fight left of that, uh, left of that mark. At the same time, we've got to be modernizing the fleet. So, 60 to 70 percent of the navy that you have today, we will have a decade from now. So, we can't ignore modernization. That's why capacity is last. So, the force that we have cannot be a hollow force. That's where we have to put our effort right now and then. As I've said in my navigation plan, I do think in order to fight in a distributed manner, we need a bigger Navy. As I mentioned a few moments ago, every study that's been done has said we need at least 355-man ships. No question that we need a bigger Navy. Um, but as I said in my navigation plan, we cannot simultaneously modernize the fleet that we have and grow to a larger fleet without 3 to 5% growth above uh, above inflation, so that'll mean at least another uh, nine or $10 billion in our budget a year. Short of that, I'm gonna focus on maintaining readiness as my number one priority, because the nation demands that they have a ready Navy to be able to respond to whatever
2: comes up. All right, thank you. I might come back around to the key regions later, uh, Admiral, but uh, over to you, Fred, from uh, the online a, audience. It is a regional
1: question. Uh, how do you assess ooh, the... Our, contrib- our allied contribution in the South Pacific and how that ties in the future naval plans and how how do you think of the contribution of the allies in that region?
0: I, so I would say that uh, when people ask me about asymmetric advantages, the first thing I talk about is sailors. But the second thing I talk about is the... Uh, um, the numbers of allies and partners that we have knitted together in the Pacific um, as a like-minded force. Last week I was in the United Kingdom for three days and I spent a day in Spain as well. As you know, we recently signed an agreement uh, about a year ago with Australia and Australia in, in the uh, in the UK known as AUKUS. Um, I think that's a strategic stroke of brilliance for the United States, or actually for all three countries, but that puts all three countries working uh, working in lockstep with advanced capabilities to put us in a position where we're not just interoper- we're not just interoperable, but we're interchangeable. So I'll give you an example with another ally, uh, the French. So when we we didn't have a carrier in the Middle East, the French uh, carrier Charles de Gaulle filled in for a U.S. carrier under the tactical control of the Fifth Fleet commander in Bahrain. Think about the power of that. If you can have another ally or partner fill in for you when you have uh, other priorities, let's say in the Western Pacific or in the Mediterranean or in the, in, in the Red Sea. We have other allies and partners that are significant as well in the Western Pacific. The Japanese, the, the South Koreans. I mentioned the Australians. The New Zealand, of course. Singapore is key for us in terms, of, uh, in terms of access. And so there are a number of allies and partners that we work with on a daily basis. Uh, India. Uh, I've spent more time on a trip to India than I have w- in any other country because I consider them to be a strategic partner for us in the future. The Indian Ocean battle space is becoming increasingly more important for us. And uh, quite frankly, the fact that the Ind- uh, uh, India and China uh, currently have um, a bit of a skirmish along their border, um, uh, I think... Um, I think it's uh, strategically important with respect to India that they now force China to not only uh, look east towards the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait, but they now have to be looking over their shoulder at India. So India as a key partner for us is absolutely absolutely essential going forward. But I would tell you that um, uh, the... uh, um, the framework that we have with the U.S. Fifth Fleet in Bahrain, where we have a coalition of the willing of 34 navies that we operate on a day-to-day basis and have of the last quarter century, is powerful. We just finished a RIMPAC exercise uh, in the Pacific, and the commander who ran that exercise, the Third Fleet commander, said, you know... Um, the the construct that we have in the middle east it wouldn't be bad if we could import that to the western pacific and he's absolutely right so uh, i remain very bullish on allies and partners keeping those relationships strong and leveraging day to day i'll just finish up by saying uh, somebody once told me that you know armies meet in conflict but navies meet day to day and we really do Uh, and we don't just operate in the military lane You know your United States Navy has effect in both the economic and the diplomatic lanes as well and that's historically been uh, very important for our country
2: thank you Um, if you have a question in the audience here in person please raise your hand and then wait for the microphone and as we wait for that um, I did have a follow-up question admiral Mm -hmm. Um, in in the navigation plan you mentioned the importance of key regions I'd be curious as to what you see, we've heard some of them already mentioned I think Mm -hmm. already just in this last, your last answer, but what is your number one as you look across the world, the one where the threat and the opportunities are greatest, and and maybe your second, your top two key regions, and you also mentioned the navigation plan, a focus on the numbered fleets, Mm -hmm. ensuring that they are postured and that they are equipped uh, appropriately. When you look at that and you look at these key regions, is there a mismatch for how the numbered fleets are structured today And with this evolving threat, global threat from China, that you might be thinking that there could be some modification to the way those number of fleets are being distributed. And and Admiral. Admiral Brathwaite, when he was Secretary of the Navy, had mentioned First Fleet. So your reactions also on that idea would be welcome as well. Sure.
0: Uh, So I'll talk about regions for just a second. Uh, So uh, my uh, two highest priorities would be the Pacific and then the Atlantic. I think the Indian Ocean is is a close third. In terms of opportunities in the future, we absolutely have to look at the Arctic. As the ice cap continues to recede, Think uh, think about trade routes in the next 25 years between Europe and Asia, fundamentally changing. I recently uh, made a trip to Iceland. And Iceland, as you know, is a member of the NATO alliance. But they don't have a military. They have a Coast Guard. But they have a key geostrategic position that we tip- typically think about in a transatlantic fashion. Think about it in a transpolar fashion. We need to think about that area much more deeply, particularly with both Finland and Sweden joining the alliance. Uh, I I see opportunities in the high north that we need to continue to operate up there with allies and partners. We need to continue to do, and and Iceland as an example, they've been gracious to allow us to do rotational deployments of our P-8 maritime patrol aircraft up there. One of my aims was to to ensure that we continue those uh, rotational deployments. Um, So with respect to the size uh, of the scope of the battle space that we have to cover and, and do we have adequate coverage with our, uh, with our fleet headquarters right now. I think that that's worthy of debate, and I think we need to continue to have that debate. I would tell you that I would prefer to focus any money that I have on capabilities and more ships rather than more headquarters. And what I've done, what we have done, our Navy has done as an example with the newly formed U.S. Second Fleet out of Norfolk is we've used them in an expeditionary manner. They're a light, agile headquarters that has, uh, that has actually operated out of iceland they've operated out of command they've traveled from norfolk to operate on our uh, command and control ship uh in the uh in the mediterranean and in the high north up by norway they have actually gone down to north carolina and operated with the marine corps and so um, my point there sir is that uh, do we have enough fleet headquarters to go around one could argue that we don't But one of the great things that the Navy brings to bear, and our headquarters included, is a maneuver,
2: uh, is is global maneuverability. That's terrific. I think we have a question over here, if we can bring a microphone. Yes,
1: ma'am. So prior to the, well, until the Ukraine war, all of the arms control publications that I was reading were focused on Russia as the principal threat. In areas such as the hypersonic missiles and, those sorts of
0: capabilities,
1: but you haven't mentioned them at all within your scheme of, of planning. And so are they, were they overestimated in these capabilities or are they just not?
0: Thank you. Uh, so they're a significant concern. Um, I'll talk first about, uh, Russia and China are both developing those capabilities and will be fielding those capabilities shortly. When I mentioned, um, Defense of the fleet is an imperative for the future fleet, not only the future fleet, but, but the fleet in this decade. Um, that's why our investments in laser technology on a def- to defend against weapons like hypersonics, as well as high-powered microwave, continue to be very high on our priority list for research and development. We've actually deployed uh, laser weapons on board, uh, on board some of our Navy ships. we are on track to deliver that capability to cross more ships here in that decade. So from a defensive nature, we are, from a defensive standpoint, we're focused on the threat. We're not ignoring it. In terms of offensive capability, the Navy and the Army are working very closely in the same hypersonic missile. The Army will deliver that capability. They'll field it next year in 2023 uh, in a mobile uh, fashion. The Navy will put it on our Zumwalt-class destroyers, our our stealthy destroyers, uh, beginning in 2025 in 2028 we'll have it on our uh, frontline Virginia class submarines that are the best lethal uh, most stealthy um, submarines in the world I hope that answers your question
2: thank you and we've got from the uh, online audience Fred back to you
1: sir there have been a few questions about recruitment and retention and how the recruitment uh, scenario nowadays has been very challenging so, what are your what are the problems that you've been seeing with recruitment, and what are the challenges that you've been seeing on retention? They specifically mentioned high-skilled officers.
0: Yes. Uh, so, let me talk broadly about uh, about recruiting. Um, we're definitely focused on retention, and we retain um, the Navy's a family, and we serve as families. And so, uh, we are focused as the, under the sector of the Navy, we're increasing our funding for uh, family uh, family focus child care uh child care centers mental health uh capacity uh education uh would be some of those examples in terms of recruiting uh during covid uh, we took a step fairly early in 2020 and went completely virtual in our recruiting efforts you don't see any uh navy commercials on tv anymore that's not where the demographic is that we're trying to recruit into the navy so we've gone to uh every uh, social media platform that we've been allowed to go on um, in terms of uh, in, in terms of um, um, getting our message out uh, but we've also done it through the eyes of sailors. So if you see our stuff online, it's not slick you know uh, Fifth Avenue uh, media stuff that we're pushing out. It's the United States Navy through the lens of a sailor because that's what's attractive to young people and, and actually, is authentic incredible. We're trying to tell a story out there of, of excitement, of opportunity, of operating in areas with cyber, quantum computing, AI, robotics, um, uh, uh, the chance to gain a skill set in a uh, 21st century skill set, uh, the education opportunities. Uh, I would tell you that uh, the, uh, the key, uh, when I, I was just aboard two Navy ships last week, uh, and when I ask sailors, "Why did you join the Navy?" the key reason continues to be to serve my country. So you can never downplay that patriotism element. It is the most most important. Um, it's the most important aspect, I think, in our recruiting message. And when we try to tell a story of the Navy through the eyes of Navy, Navy sailors, um, uh, that really rings true, and I think it, it sends a message that what they're doing is important. They are part of an important world-class elite team. One of the other things that we've done is we've um, we've uh, we've leveraged um, um, uh, kind of popular and uh, uh, do-it-yourself uh, venues uh, online. Uh, on uh, venues like youtube as an example where we'll take a navy navy musician and he'll uh, be in a, a drum a drum contest with a uh, with a famous you know band uh, 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 drummer in a, in a in a in a famous band or we'll take a navy cb uh, our construction force and we'll have them with an engineer talking about what they do for a living in the western pacific building infrastructure on remote islands and so we try to make it real authentic uh and keep it uh we try to keep it real and that's been successful so the navys we've been meeting our recruiting goals this year uh we know that we're in a pinch we're not uh we're not resting on our laurels um but we continue to look for innovative ways to get our message out again
2: through the eyes of sailors question in the back over here and then we'll go to you sir
1: Uh, what can you discuss about project overmatch
2: so
0: Overmatch um, is a project, uh, let me say this, one of the aspects I talked about that was important to the future fleet, actually the fleet of this decade, is one of decision advantage. So how, th- th- we are swimming in data. How do you get the right information to the right decision maker at the right time uh, to put yourself in a, in a position of advantage against your opponent? So um, what we've decided to do with Project Overmatch, I've made it my second highest priority after delivering the Columbia-class submarine. And what, I'm, what we're aiming for, and we've actually uh, had a lot of success with, is developing a network of networks that allows us to transfer any data over any network. So it's a software-defined communication uh, communication as a service framework where where software actually decides what that prioritized information is and what the best path it should take to get to a decision maker. Overmatch has been a project now for about a year and a half. We're at the point early next year where we will um, uh, deploy your carrier strike group with this capability. We'll see how it goes and then look to scale it after that. We believe that the Navy is on a path to deliver the Navy tactical grid, which we think could easily become the joint tactical grid as part of a priority project called JADC2 for the Department of Defense. We feel we're in a very good uh, path right now in terms of our experimentation. It is a DevOps environment that we're leveraging right now, and we're actually leveraging the best uh, technology that we can, but also the best processes uh, that we've been able to to uh, um, to obtain from industry. So we're trying to we've so we're trying to benchmark against uh, against world class networks and world class uh, software systems. All right, sir. I'd like to, building on your comments about partners and allies in the Indo-Pacific and then the, the new AUKUS agreement um, in there, under the framework of, you know, this expanding Chinese capabilities and range arcs, uh, is the Navy looking at uh, kind of, pre you know, for deploying and looking at new bases? and bases and places, kind of like as, you know, I think Admiral Richard and Neville Greenert say, of where we can uh, forward base our ships in Australia and other places to kind of, is that dispersal piece, but also uh, provide a more of a conventional return of being kind of closer in there. So the short answer is absolutely. So we are taking a look at opportunities, particularly in the Pacific. We have a plan that's closely knitted with uh, uh, Indo- Indo-PACOM commands, vision for future posture in the Pacific, that would include sustainment as well, which I think you mentioned would be an important aspect of it. The other is, as China as China continues to become a more capable force, that timeline for, you know, uh, for moving potentially across the Taiwan Strait uh, becomes shorter and shorter in terms of tactical warning. And so uh, forward force, uh, as the Navy and the Marine Corps are, are in a position to be able to respond. And so we think that uh, again, forward-deployed naval forces, particularly if we can if we can keep forces home ported forward, uh, puts us in a better position to be able to respond fast. Okay. Uh,
1: now, from the uh, online audience. Okay. Uh, following up on your comments on the arctic uh what about the american arctic and the u.s coast guard operations there do you see more cooperation with the sister services how has the navy coast guard interaction been playing on that area
0: yeah so i would tell you that we are uh highly reliant on the coast guard as a partner uh they've just put their five most capable uh cutters in the western pacific they just did a, um, a few months ago they just did a big commissioning ceremony i think of three ships in Guam simultaneously, so they're on a great vector right now in terms of their capabilities. We're leveraging that, whether it's in the Caribbean, uh, whether it's in the in the Western Pacific. You see them operating side by side with us in in the in the Arabian Sea and also up in the high north. So. I think that that's going to continue. We're in a very good path with the Coast Guard as a, as a service, uh, as, a par- as, a, as a partner. And I would tell you that uh, likewise with the United States Marine Corps, we've been lockstep with the commandant in terms of um, supportive of his force design and where he's going uh, with the Marine Corps and his marine littoral elements, his, uh, his uh, expeditionary advanced bases to actually uh, support the fleet in a fight.
2: Uh, Yes, sir.
1: Sir, Cargill is the Belgian uh, defense attaché. Uh, With respect to uh, threat assessment, how would, according to you, look the uh, next uh, Pearl Harbor? What would it look like?
0: Um, I think it's likely to begin in space and cyberspace. Um, I think that many of the uh, Again, I'll be in a war game next week, but I increasingly see those as first steps. I was actually a bit surprised uh, that uh, Russia didn't leverage their uh, cyber capabilities more broadly in the beginning in the beginning of the, the ongoing conflict. But um, I would predict that we will see heavy cyber and space um, activity uh, in any fight, and that would likely be uh, the next Pearl Harbor. We all recognize our vulnerabilities and... Um, Uh, in the cyber domain, and so uh, others recognize that too. As I mentioned earlier, uh, the way that the Navy looks at how we're potentially going to fight isn't just on the sea, under the sea, it's seabed warfare, it's in the air, it's space, and it's cyberspace. So uh, a potential fight against China um, is not just limited to a single domain. It has to be multi-domain. It also is likely to be trans-regional. So you just can't think of China uh, through the lens of the Indo-Pacific. You have to look at the Indian Ocean. You have to look at uh, you have to look at their Belt and Road, their economic uh, uh, their ac- economic connective
2: tissue, which is now global. You have to take a look at their vulnerabilities. All right, I think we've got quite a lot coming in from online. Back to you, Fred.
1: Yeah, we do, uh, Admiral. Several years, several months ago, you said that the submarine industrial base was not up to par particularly with respect to private submarine maintenance. Do you have any update on that front? Has, have things changed or not? Has it improved, deteriorated? Anything that you can comment on that?
0: So not enough uh, time has really passed yet to, to, to tell you that there's been a significant change other than uh, there's a laser focus on industry to improve. They get the seriousness of this. Uh, they're a dedicated partner in this. Um, and they know how, if, if you go to a shipyard um, whether it's down in Newport News, Virginia, uh, or if you go up to um, uh, Groton, Connecticut, you go to Quonset Point, Rhode Island, you go to Bath, Maine, you go to Pascagoula, Mississippi, or San Diego, and you meet those those uh, skilled trades tradesmen and tradeswomen and what they do and what they believe in, I'm telling you, they are dedicated and they believe that they are, we, we are true partners in terms of what we need to get done and, and what the Wall Street Journal calls the combustible decade, what others call the decade of urgency. So I remain optimistic about the path we're on. We're not satisfied. None of us are satisfied with where we currently are. And that includes industry. And they've been self-critical as well. So um, uh, they're getting after it.
2: OK, we're reaching towards the end. Uh ah, we got one more from the audience. Um,
1: please. Hi, Admiral. Mallory Shelbourne with USNI News. Um, Wanted to follow up on your nav plan. Given the numbers and the goals in there for um, unman- both unmanned and manned ships, what do you see as the biggest barrier to growing the fleet?
0: Yeah, so um, uh, so we have an industrial capacity that's limited. Uh, in other words, we can only get so many ships off the production year um, uh, production line a year. My goal would be to optimize those production lines for destroyers, for frigates, uh, for amphibious ships, for, for the light am, amphibious ships, for supply ships. And so we need to give a signal to industry that we need to get to um, three destroyers a year, you know, instead of 1.5, that we need to maintain two submarines a year. And so part of this is on us to give them a clear set of A clear aim point so that they can plan a workforce and infrastructure that's going to be able to to meet the demand but um but again that's you know no industry is going to make those kinds of investments unless we give them a higher degree of confidence and that's what we're trying to we're we're trying to round that round that curve to put us in a place where we're producing those lethal capable ships that we need the most in terms of unmanned we are making um i think uh Um, breathtaking progress right now Um, we've changed the construct we've changed the framework in terms of our development of unmanned capabilities and so when I first got into the job uh, I looked at unmanned through the lens that I look at any shipbuilding or aircraft production production line so you know think of a 7 to 15 year process in order to get something off the delivery line from first design to you know to testing and acceptance We can't do that with unmanned. With unmanned technologies that are out there, we've developed a DevOps kind of environment with an unmanned task force in the Pentagon that's closely connected to Task Force 59, which operates out of Bahrain. And that task force is operating with six or seven different countries um, um, uh, as a team uh, right now, to increase maritime domain awareness using unmanned in the air and on the sea, our goal is to have 100 networked unmanned uh, platforms operating together, uh, tied together uh, in a mesh network uh, that delivers um, a um, uh, uh, an understanding of what's afloat out there, whether it's in the Red Sea and the Arabian Gulf. We get to 100 unmanned uh, by next year, by the summer of 2023 so if i could just describe what that kind of means in real terms if we took take a look at the red sea the red sea is about the size of the state of california on any given day we may have four or five uh, coalition ships that are operating in that water space think about five patrol cars trying to secure the state of california Um, and then think about the power of unmanned and what that capability gives you in terms of sensing and then understanding at the tactical edge in these operation centers in our partner nations uh, leveraging ai in terms of unmanned itself one of the biggest changes is is the way that we're looking at um, uh, the magic sauce for ai if i could use a water bottle as an example isn't necessarily the platform it's the AI software integration that plugs in. So if I do a parallel to Tesla, who's a digital native in, uh, in the automotive industry, there's plenty of platforms out there. Volkswagen, Ford, a number of companies have the platform. The secret sauce is that AI software plug. And we don't have to have the same company that develops both of these. It's a very competitive environment. Small companies um, are making the, the magic plug-in uh, that we can change out very quickly. So we're trying to field capabilities and unmanned capabilities in this uh, fiscal year defense plan within three to five years. Actually, we're, we're fielding it now. It's also informing, uh, this progress is informing some of our bigger programs like large and medium, medium unmanned that we would hope to scale later on in this decade.
2: i'm going to keep going with oh we have one from the from online but first we'll go over here if we can get a microphone to you but uh moderator's prerogative real quick you mentioned task force 59 and earlier you also mentioned uh unmanned being tested during rem pack could you kind of tell a little bit about the future for fleet experimentation and will it be replicated at more more of our numbered fleets absolutely will and so
0: um we're doing more and more experimentation uh, so i'll give you an example we have taken unmanned platforms and we have sailed them uh from um uh, uh from the uh, uh from the gulf states through the panama canal up to port wianemi california so 4,000 plus miles we've got you know 40,000 miles of unmanned uh, uh unmanned autonomous operation making those transits where we have these unmanned vessels that are able to follow rules of the road they're avoiding other ships they're they're uh they're uh, operating within uh, within the uh, international uh, rules of the road, and so we're making significant progress in, op- in, in doing those kinds of operations, as well as you mentioned RIMPAC. So um, it's not only uh, the work we're doing in Fifth Fleet is to is to not only sense but make sense of the maritime environment. The uh, the testing that we did during RIMPAC was actually passing target targeting data to unmanned vessels and firing weapons. Uh, from them. And so uh, we're trying to come at this in a very rapid way that is much different than the approach we've had with traditional weapon systems in the past. We've
2: got to feel the capability. So this can be the last questions. Uh, so f- go to the online and then we'll go to you and then we'll have to wrap up.
1: The online one is a quick follow-up on uh, unmanned vessels. Uh, the U.S. has provided unmanned coastal defense vessels to the Ukraine. Uh what are those? What how effective have they been? what have we learned from that usage? What are the type of missions that they are being used for? What are the specific systems? What are the details that you can share on that? I can't. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I said it would be a short one. <laughs> I will I will
0: say there are plenty of lessons to learn uh from Russia Ukraine and among them are um you know, you need to come at you need to come at an adversary differently than you traditionally would think of in the past. So uh, we haven't provided the Ukrainians tanks to take out the Russian tanks. We've provided them Javelin missiles. And so you just got to think of better ways to get after the problem
1: quicker. Sir. Hi, Tony Capasso with Bloomberg. I have one you can't answer. What's the status of the uh, service deployment for the for the Ford into the 6th Fleet uh, AOR this year? And what's your confidence level that the repeated reliability problems laid out by the DOT and E-reports are- as recently as January, for emails and AGG have been solved and that's somewhat meeting reliability goals that are necessary for a sortie generation, rate. Right?
0: So just a couple of years ago, uh, we did not intend to uh, employ the Gerald R. Ford until 2025. We're going to send her uh, this, this year. I'm not going to say exactly when, and I'm going to say exactly where she's going to go, but we're going to deploy her as part of a battle group uh, this year. Um, we have, uh, put a lot of, we, we put a shoulder behind, uh, getting beyond some of the heavy technology problems we've had with elevators, with, arresting uh, resting gear, with, with catapults. Last year, we took the Gerald R. Ford and she had the highest operational tempo of any ship in the Navy. She had 8,500 catapults and arrested landings on that flight deck. Um, she was our, um, uh, our carrier qual, um, carrier in the Atlantic for our our pilots that had to qualify on the East Coast. In terms of the uh, network issues, um, we're leveraging Starlink uh, to give us more bandwidth and uh, satellite capability. So we're leveraging commercial satellites uh, at a a scale that we uh, have not done before to give us that kind of, to give us uh, more capability.
2: All right, well, thank you very much, Admiral. Thank you, everyone in audience here and online as well. I did want to give you the chance, Admiral, as I'm kind of wrapping up a little bit here, if you had any parting comments, any points that uh, you want to make before we close out the evening. So all of you are
0: influencers, and I hope that some of the things that I've talked about um, with respect to your Navy tonight were appealing, and I hope that uh, that young people that you can influence, I'd ask you to, to talk to them about the Navy, to talk to them about the military and the opportunities That it presents them, but also talk about the opportunities that it presents to serve their country, uh, to serve the greatest nation in the world. And so, um, your talent, uh, the talent in this country, is important to us, and uh, we hope that we continue to be an attractive option for young people. And I've never met anybody that you know um, my age that served in the Navy and said it hasn't been a fun, hasn't fundamentally changed their lives, and it's you know they've had good, solid, positive memories. And so. so that's how you could help us, I think, and help your help your country and help your navy. So thank you.
2: Thank you again, and and thank you all for attending tonight and your active participation, both online and here in the room. Uh, thank you very much, Admiral, again for your Thanks, time Ms. this evening. Thank you.